Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Tax Moves Glenn Burnbaum. Glenn, looks like there is a... Uh, a little bit of clarity of stuff kind of coming out, but yeah. you know, it's it's the cool thing about the government shutdown is they kept the IRS open, so that's that's a definite plus there, right, buddy? That's right. You gotta you gotta keep those breweries in line. So. Yeah, and it's yeah, so the, it's important. Maybe it's KC, you know, we've been talking about you know this new section one nine nine eight. Probably most of last year, you know, that's what really started this podcast on the tax side, at least, and. Yep. Uh, so what we're going to be talking about today is not what I kind of call the turbocharge 199A or you know the, the special farmer co-op rules because um, unfortunately we still don't even have the proposed rules on that. But we're just going to talk about the regular kind of normal 199A that you know applies to a lot of businesses. You know whether it be a you know an equipment dealership or um, you know construction company. You know. A lot of different businesses, you know, distributors. There's there's just a lot of businesses this covers, and it also, you know, this 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 rule does factor in for farmers as well. It's just there's we just don't have any new news really on that from like the co-op standpoint. So, um, but anyway, the big news is Friday afternoon they finally came out with these final regulations, which are they they had proposed regulations in August. They had a hearing in October and they issued final regulations last Friday, the 18th in the afternoon. Um, and so 247 pages. So I've got it right here, Casey, 247 pages. This is printed front and back, so it's, it's pretty, pretty. Just some light reading, right? The 247 pages we've been reviewing, uh, you know, a decent amount of this is is a repeat, but they, they really have to address, remember that public hearing in October, you know, there's comments, right? People people spoke at the hearing, they testified at the hearing. There was there was over 300 letters that were wrote in, and so in the in what's called the preamble to these regulations, the tre- treasury has to kind of address the comments and say, hey, you know, one commenter proposed this idea. You know, we either kind of disagree or agree kind of thing. So they have to really give their explanation. So the first the proposed regs were, I believe, 184 pages. The final regs were 247 pages. Um, because of just all the extra explanation that they had to do um, addressing addressing the comments, so so we got some flavor of, of how the treasury's looking at this. So what we thought we'd do today um, would just kind of run run over some of the highlights, um, and we're going to kind of compare this the final rules to the proposed rules because again we've talked about these proposed rules before, and I'm going to be I've got some notes here on another screen, so I'm going to be. And I'm probably not winging this today, Casey, as much as I usually do. So I've got, I've got some notes, but so I kind of want to start with, well, what are the bad things? And again, this is more of a general thing. This is not just ag specific. Um, some of the bad things are that for health, um, which was a specified service trader business, kind of with law, accounting, you know, doctors, that type of thing, right? They're not going to get this one day 
they originally they said, well, uh, you're going to have to be providing medical services directly to a patient. That's going to be our distinction, right? Medical, anyone who provides medical services, quote, directly to a patient. Well, they did away with the directly to a patient in these final regs. So, for example, like a radiologist technically would not be providing medical services directly to a patient. So most people thought, hey, a radiologist would be okay, right? Under the proposed rules, under these final rules, they did away with that. So it's a broader definition of health, bottom line on that. Um, they gave us some clarity on how to treat certain deductions, um, like self-employment tax. Uh, so this definitely does impact farmers who are self-employed. Self-employment tax, self-employed health insurance, these used to be on uh, page one of your tax return. They weren't actually on Schedule F, Casey. So the question was, well, do these deductions reduce, you know, my QBI, it's called my qualified business income, right? So if I have a, you know, I'm gonna keep this simple. If I have $100,000 of income on my Schedule F, I can get potentially, if I sell to a private grain elevator, a 20% deduction, right? That's $20,000 deduction. But what if I've got self-employment tax or, or health insurance that I'm paying, right? And that's not on Schedule F, it's on page one of my tax return. And so do I reduce that $100,000 by those types of expenses? We weren't sure. Um, IRS came out and said, yes, you would reduce it for retirement plan contributions, which is a big one, like your SEP, SEP plans and things, or, you know, 401k type, um, profit sharing type plans, right? If it relates to a business, you're going to reduce your schedule of income by self-employed health insurance, well, self-employment taxes and retirement plan contributions. So that's a negative because we weren't sure if maybe we could get 20% on just our pure schedule of income, but now we've got to take into account these other deductions. Um, the other bad news is that we talked about um, before is that this uh, de minimis rule, which is a cliff issue with the specified service trades or businesses. If I've got a little bit of bad, bad, you know, consulting in with my very other, my other business, which is good, you know, there's 20% of my business is consulting and 80% of my business is, you know, distribution. And so you might think, well, if I don't get this deduction on the consulting, I'll just kind of do a per allocation of my expenses and, you know, I'll still get it on my 80% business. That's good, right? Well, this de minimis rule came in and said, no, once you're over this uh, either five or 10% cliff, um, unless you can argue that it's a separate trader business. And so we're getting, getting a little too deep here, Casey, but the bottom line is the IRS said, you have to potentially um, lose out on this deduction, even if you just have a little bit of, of, of quote unquote bad income, it's maybe more than say 10%. So if I've got, you know, only 5%, I'm going to be okay, but I've got, you know, 10, 20, 15%, it's going to be a problem. So a lot of people speculated that, is that really what the IRS means? Do they really intend for this to be a cliff, you know, that I can ignore it if it's a little bit of bad revenue, but once it goes over, I can't ignore it, obviously, but then even worse, it, it can potentially taint all the other income from my business. And so there's still some other angles there that, that we feel like we can argue, but they very clearly said that this de minimis rule operates as a cliff. So th this shouldn't be a, any sort of an issue for, you know, a farmer type client, because you generally don't have a lot of consulting or, you know, other types of um, tainted revenue, but still a problem. Um, what about, what about a guy that farms and has a, uh, 
if I understand this correctly, has a seed business and then he does some yeah. some crop consulting and those kind of things. So it's seed businesses would be okay. Sales is okay. It would be like if you're just consulting, like billing for your time and just providing what's what they call it, advice and counsel, um, and you're separately billing for that. You know, then you could have an issue. But it is based on gross receipts. So if okay. you're a, if you're a farmer and as long as you're under twenty five million in revenue, which is obviously a big number. Um, you can actually have up to 10% of your gross receipts be tainted. So that's a very large, you know, dollar threshold if you're, if you got your grain sales in that mix. So shouldn't really be an issue um, for most farm plants, at least any of any that I can think of. But for a lot of other businesses, right, you've got a little bit of consulting that you do and you've got some sales or advertising and marketing kind of stuff. And you've got to work through the computations and potentially you have this risk that a little bit of income, say maybe 11%, of bad income contained the other 89%. So, so that's, that's definitely a bad thing. Um, probably the biggest negative that I can think of for our farm clients, um, which is just, which is pretty unique, but, um, there is this rule, you might remember this case that says, okay, if, if a related party is paying me rent, right, I'm a landlord, right. But you know, my son's paying me rent or, or what have you, this related party rent gets a special pass. It's going to be considered a trader business. It's going to be eligible for this 199 deduction, just basically because the IRS is being nice and saying, hey, if you got self-rental income right to yourself or to a family member, we're going to let you have a kind of a free pass and you'll get this 20% deduction on your rental income. Okay. There's certain limits. Well, a lot of people said, well, what, what is considered a related party? And most people thought, well, if the C Corp, if there's a, so this is just a C Corporation issue, but if your farming entity is a C Corporation and you own that 100%, and let's just to keep this simple, you also have a, you know, LLC maybe with your spouse, you know, and that owns the farmland, right? And then the C Corporation is paying rent to the LLC. Well, that's self-rental, most people would think, right? I own both. So I should be able to count that, that rental income. Well, the IRS came out and said, yes, that all works fine Danny, unless you're a C corporation. So if you're a C corporation paying the rent over to your LLC, you will not get the 20% deduction on that LLC income. So pretty, pretty narrow fact pattern, but definitely something that most people thought, oh, that's, yeah, that'll, that'll be considered okay. So if you have, but if you have corporation, and I guess because C corporations are basically not eligible for this one nine deduction, they said we're going to uh, you know kind of disallow that. So if, again, if a C corporation is paying rent to your LLC land entity, you don't get that free pass. Um, you've got to follow you, the only way to say it's a trader business is, and we're going to talk about this in a bit here, is to you know look at case law and, and code sections and things. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of help there, Casey, but. But um, again, C corporations paying rent is kind of a bad thing. Okay, so if you have a if you have a C corp and that's how you're you have two different entities. One, like you said, you have a, a land holdings, and then you have a, a C corp that's something else or whatever it might be. Maybe it's maybe it's the equipment holdings or something like that. Um, would you reorganize now and, and and have two LLCs? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the one thing about this one nine eight deduction is that it's going to expire. Um, and years after 2025 right now. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not around for too long. So, um, you've got to look at it, but I, I'm not sure I would, um, 
So in other words, if you're an S, if you're an S corp and you're that farm entity, then then you that rental income would be eligible, right? If you're a sole proprietor, if you're a partnership. So all the other all the other entities do count, uh, but not a C corp. So it is something to you know it's another fact pattern to say, hey, should we switch over our farm corporation over to an S? There, there's issues to deal with there. Sometimes C corporations are good with um, employer provided housing and things. There's some there's some unique rules. Um, but do remember that a C corporation tax rate is now 21% flat, mm. flat rate. And you know, it used to get up to 35%. And if it was over $100,000, it actually was at 39%. And then it went back down to 30 to 35. So, you know, if you're a C corporation and you had some income in there, you, you could benefit there. But it's a good question. Um, and it's something you definitely want to think about is should, should I like S corp status if I still have my operating farm entity? Okay. Good okay. stuff. Looking at my notes here, the only other thing that I want to talk about is this. They, uh, this could either be good or bad news, um, but they came out with a. This is Treasury. This is actually not in the final regulations, in the actual text of the final regulations. They just refer to it in the preamble. Remember, that's the, all the commentary and the discussion that they issued a notice. Uh, IRS notice 2019-7, I believe, is a is basically what's called a safe harbor for rental real estate. Okay, so there was this question of, well, what's a trader business? And it's not real clear. Um, but in particular, it's not real clear if I have rental real estate, right? So this could be farmland, this could be commercial property, residential property, right? What what's gonna be the criteria that this rises to the level of a trader business, okay? And they didn't really give us much guidance. They said, well, just look at past case law and stuff. And there's a Supreme Court case, the Grossinger case, that talks about, you know, continuous and regular activity with the primary intent to make a profit. And, but, you know, you, you can get lost in all this, Casey. But So the IRS came out with this notice and said, we're going to provide a safe harbor that's going to say, if you meet these rules, these tests, you will be able to call this a trader business, okay? So it's a nice thing, um, but it's got a pretty pretty strict uh, rule. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but the basic thing is they're saying that you have to have 250 hours a year in this activity, in this rental activity. Now, I should say I don't really mean you. I mean yourself as the owner. It could be your employees. It could be independent contractors. It could be property agents, right? So it's not just your hours, but it has to be somebody's hours, 250 hours. If you can, you know, you got to have time records and things, logs, which, which are, could be very tricky. Um, but if you can show that there's 250 hours in this activity per year, then you, you for sure are good, right? It's a safe harbor. It's just like the rental real estate safe harbor if I'm self-renting. This though is a pretty high standard, right? 250 hours. That case is, you know, roughly five hours a week, right? So the concern would be, well, if I don't have 250 hours in my activity, right? I may not be able to get it, at least according to this safe harbor. So, you know, just think about that. You know, if you're, if you've got crop share income, right? Is, is a typical crop share landlord, you know, taking that long? A year. What do you think, Casey? How does 250 hours strike you? So, uh, just so I understand, wrap my head around this. Yeah, what, 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 <clears throat> so, if I understand it right, so you're saying if I have a, a circle of ground, 
120-acre circle, and I want to cash rent that to somebody or crop share it or whatever, they have to, uh, all the functions of, of the farming operation from, you know, getting seed bed, seed bed preparation right and then planting it and then, you know, fertilizer and chemical and yada, 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 and this, that, and the other thing, irrigation, harvest, getting it ready for the next year. That has to be 250 hours worth of time to count for a deduction on your on your rental on your harbor of the of the tax there. This is good. I like I like your questions again. I need to clarify this a little better. So, so first of all, this is not applicable for any sort of related party leases, right? I should I should make that clear. Okay. If you're related party lease, we've got that extra exception. But th this is if you're you know your your tenants are you know not family members basically, right? Right. Third party rentals. So, in this notice, Casey, which is what I'm just looking at here, the IRS comes up with here's the type of activities that are going to count towards those 250 hours. And it there's some question, but I would think very clearly that on cash rent, the farmers, this is the maybe a little bit unclear, but do the farmers' activities of planting the crop, harvesting the crop, count towards the landlord's hours? Okay, I'm not sure I can answer that question right now. But I can tell you what the IRS says counts towards the hours, you know, not in an ag context, just in a general rental context. It's, you know, like things like advertising, Negotiating and executing leases, verifying tenant applications, right? If you're talking about some sort of apartment building thing, collecting rent, operations, maintenance, and repairs. So, you know, if you are doing the, if you're mowing the road ditches and things, something like that here in Illinois, you know, or, or again, or you're contracting them out, right? It's not just yourself, but somebody, it's, it's the landlord's responsibility to do these things. And the landlord's responsibility is 250 hours. So it's either yourself, your employees, your agents, or independent contractors. That's that's the, the four. Mm -hmm. So also it's things like management, purchasing, and supervision. So they're very clear on these things. They're also clear on what doesn't count. Things like, you know, arranging financing or time spent to buy the property, time spent reviewing financial statements or operational reports, um, planning for, you know, long-term capital improvements and things, right? If you're going to try to put in, you know, you know some sort of irrigation system now, you know, I haven't really thought exactly what that means, but it talks about, you know, planning, managing and constructing improvements doesn't count. And also this is very important. The hours spent traveling to and from the real estate doesn't count. So basically, you know, if I've got some, we're here in Illinois here, if I've got some land in Iowa and I travel out there, you know, six times a summer to look at things, those hours aren't going to count towards the turn of the hours. So, it's really pretty restrictive. So with that being said, Casey, does that help clarify the types of things that count and don't count? Yeah, I think so. And it sounds like to me that there's not going to be a lot of uh, safe harboring of, of rental income and yeah. in, from the IRS so standpoint. Yeah, it seems like a pretty high threshold. Now, now let's say I only have 150 hours. I could still potentially make my case, right, that, you know, based on, hey, I understand of XYZ case law or, you know, here's here's my position, you know, according to what, what, you know, this, this statute says or something, but if I'm going to claim this safe harbor, I've got to have the 250 hours. I've got to have a log for 2019. You actually get a break for 2018. I've got to have a contemporaneous time log for 2019. There's also a statement that you would sign on the tax return under penalties of perjury that, you know, you are meeting this 250 hour requirement. So it's really a pretty high threshold, um, but it gives us a, a good sense of what, what the IRS is thinking. So, 
So again, it's, this is not for related party leases, right? This is third party leases. This would also not apply to any sort of triple net lease. And a triple net lease generally is things like, you know, real estate taxes, um, maintenance, insurance. If those are paid by the tenant, not the landlord, right? If the tenant's paying all that stuff, then that's considered a triple net lease. So here in Illinois, most cash rent leases, uh, the landlord still pays the real estate taxes. So technically it would not be a triple net lease, but we'd still have to be able to say that, you know, there are, um, that this, this activity rises to the level of trade or business. So keep that in mind. Um, the other thing, just looking at my notes here, the IRS did give us just some factors to consider in determining whether you have a trade or business, just kind of a general, uh, general factors to consider. Um, they say, is the property commercial or residential uh, is a factor. And I think people might say, if, you know, if you've got more residential property, you know, apartment buildings and things where there's more tenants, there's maybe more turnover with tenants, uh, there's probably a better chance um, to, you could you claim this deduction. Whether you, you know, the number of properties that you have, um, you know, the owner's involvement or the owner's agents, it says. So either the owner or the owner's involvement in the day-to-day -day activity is a factor. Um, whether it's a net lease or a gross lease kind of thing, right? Triple net lease versus um, a lease where the landlord still would be responsible uh, responsible for things like real estate taxes. And then whether whether it's the last factor they list is whether it's a short-term lease or a long-term lease. So, you know, if it's a short-term lease, um, you've got a better chance at, at this argument to say it's uh, eligible. If it's a long-term lease, you know, like a cell tower, windmill lease, it might be a 20-year lease, you know, pretty much hands-off. That's pretty much an overrated that you're not going to get it. So, again, they've given us a flavor of, the, of what might be considered um, a trader business, and they've thrown out this safe harbor for 250 hours, which seems like a pretty high threshold. Um, okay, so question. For sure, for a cash rent landlord, I mean, right? That's, that's a pretty high threshold. Now, what about a crop share landlord, Casey? What are your thoughts? How does this strike you? For a crop share landlord, you know, say 50% of the crop, mm -hmm. you get, right? You pay 50% of the inputs. What do you think about the 250 hours in that context? All right, so one, one more clarifying question. So is that 250 hours per, per property, or is it a collective amount? Good question. They do allow you to group properties together, but you cannot group. The one thing they say is you cannot group commercial real estate with residential real estate. So presumably in a farmland context, um, you know, you could group all your farmlands together. Um, but you, but if you also had an apartment building, right, you could not group it together. So again, if you just have one property or, you know, somebody that just has a, a house, right, maybe it was their primary residence at one point, and they still keep it, right, they rent it out to somebody you know, you're going to have a hard time probably meeting that 250 hour requirement, right? So what, what if you had, uh, like some of these guys out here, they'll, they'll have a, uh, they'll have, I don't know, a piece of ground that they're renting. And on that ground that they're renting, there's a, a house. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that house that you're renting, um, that, yep. that's part of the rent. So yep. the landlord's going to maintain the property yeah. and make sure everything works the way it's supposed to, but he's also cash renting the ground that it's on to, right? Yeah. So how, how does that fall into the mix? It's a good question. I haven't thought about it, but I mean, I, if, if commercial property and residential rental property are not able to be grouped together, I wouldn't think, you know, that farmland rental and, you know, residential rental would be grouped, would be grouped together. 
So it kind of does put a, a real problem if you just have kind of a, you know, a house. Mm -hmm. But I don't you know, that's, that's just kind of my initial, initial thought on that. But it's two types of rental properties, right? Yeah. Um, and the IRS, on, most rentals will go on Schedule E, case, you know, there's different schedules to the return, Schedule F and Schedule C or the, you know, where you put sole proprietor income. But Schedule E, is page one, is where you put rental income. And there's also codes for each rental property. You have to code it, whether it's self-rental, whether it's residential, whether it's commercial. So, so there is kind of a way for the IRS to kind of check this. But yeah, I guess off the cuff, I would say that you would not be able to kind of lump those two together. Yeah. So, I mean, back to your question of what would the uh, crop, share, crop yeah. share thing. It sounds like to me there's not a lot of benefit here for farm. I mean, I just, if you, irrigation doesn't count as, I mean, especially out here if guys are, are doing some kind of flood irrigating or even just putting in pivots or just checking their pivots and, and, and keeping. Well, uh, checking the pivots and maintaining. Remember I said operations, yeah. maintenance, and repairs. So, so checking on the pivots, I think, counts. Okay, so okay, so every year if I'm a if I'm a flood irrigator out here in the uh, in the Panhandle in Nebraska, and I every year I get my hired hand and and we go out and we we start laying out the, the irrigation pipe, so we can flood that out. I mean that takes weeks. Those guys are out there forever doing that stuff. Is that is that a does that count or is that a is that considered an improvement? Well, but you're saying I'm not familiar with, but I mean it's something you do every year. Yeah, you take the pipe in and out every year. Yeah, I, I don't. That is not a long-term capital improvement. You know. So would an irrigation pivot be a long-term? Yeah, if you're doing it every year, that's operations maintenance. So I think I think that would. Uh, well, then that would absolutely that would, that would absolutely yeah. capture it. So what so about? We're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're still looking at these rules, but turning for the hours again about five hours a week mm -hmm. doesn't have to be your own efforts. It could be you know independent contractors, right? Employees, agents, but. Um, seems like a high threshold in general. So would would an irrigation pivot be a long term capital improvement? It would be. I mean, I think constructing it, um, you know, just the time spent constructing it doesn't count. That's right. all they're saying. Managing, planning, constructing it doesn't count, but the maintenance of it thereafter would count toward this requirement. So, so your your maintenance of your well and your engine and yeah. and and the uh, and the actual pivot itself, you could you could yeah. probably so, do. I mean, it. I think. You got a better argument, sounds like, out, you know, out in your territory. Yeah. We do here, yeah, because there's just, you know, not a lot of making you get, you know, mowing ditches and, you know, fixing broken tile and stuff in the ground, right? Mm -hmm. But there's just not as much maintenance. Um, but again, a crop share landlord would also have, you know, hours spent, right? You know, presumably selling the grain, right? right. For market themselves and, you know, helping decide what inputs and that. Again, no real clear guidance on this, but I'd be interested to hear what other people say. But but uh, a, crop, a crop share landlord uh, may be able to you know meet this term fifty hours. Um, I'm sure, they would have an easier chance than a, a cash rent landlord. Yep. Well, sounds like to me like every other tax code, there's a little gray area there, and maybe a yeah. loop, loophole and or two to jump are, through. There will be people, you know, there'll be people, you know, in effect, you know, challenging the government's stance on this. Right. 
Well. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the bad things, and I think I think that's pretty much all the bad things. Um, so let's talk about okay, see if we got more time here. Yep, no. There's, got there's all actually time in the world. some good things. Okay. And the, probably the biggest thing is this is one of, we definitely talked about this. But is it in a, in a maybe a classic scenario where you've got three brothers and they have a schedule of each of them are farming on their own, right? But the land that they the family owns together is in a you know partnership or something or an LLC. So they're each paying cash rent into this LLC. And you know, hey, wouldn't that be considered self-rent, right? Self-rental income. Well, the, under the proposed rules, they would not allow siblings or brothers to count as family, basically. So, what? You know, it's a real problem. How's that work? Siblings. Uh, so luckily, what they did is they changed the, the definition of a family, and now they, they've added in siblings. There's some other things, too. It's under Code Section 267B or 707B, if you're interested. But the bottom line is siblings are now considered family, so each of those brothers sisters, whoever it might be, right, paying rent into an entity that they control would be okay. So they, that will get that free pass for the deduction. I don't need the turn for the hours. That's, that's a huge help, right? Yeah. Um, how, how did that... Very nice that they changed that rule. So previous to this rule change, if my brother and I were in a, doing something and he had a whole other setup and he was paying rent into this deal, right? Okay. He didn't count as family? If it was actually two brothers, yeah. two siblings, it would be fine because it was 50% or more. Right. So two brothers was okay, but three brothers or more, three siblings or more was a problem. So, um, but yeah, if you had three hmm. siblings involved, you'd have, you'd have had an issue. That sounds ridiculous, Glenn. But yeah. well, good, good you know, thing they changed it. It's just, uh, just a loss. So anyway, that, that yeah. was very helpful. Um, other things, they, you are able to aggregate, um, and this is a key thing. This gets kind of complicated, but the bottom line is they're now letting us aggregate different businesses at the entity level and not just at the individual level. So this helps a lot of tax preparers. Tax preparers are breathing a, breathing a sigh of relief because before this rule, we would have to pass out, you know, if there was three different businesses underneath the common entity, you'd have to pass out all this information of, you know, what's your eligible wages and your, and your qualified property. And it, you just get real messy because you could not aggregate businesses um, until you got to the actual, you know, personal tax return level. Well, now they're saying, hey, we're going to let entities aggregate. So where you might need to aggregate, Casey, as a reminder, this is a pretty high income threshold. If you're over $315,000 of taxable income, right? So a pretty high threshold for married bond joint. But you may need to aggregate your, your operating farm together with your, your land entity Right, and mix those together because you've got, once you go over this 315 number, you've got to start having either wages or wages and qualified property to get this deduction because, you know, this, we get, it gets complicated, right, if you make more than 315. So if you do make more than 315 and your land, you know, isn't depreciable, you have no wages in that entity, you're going to need to bring it together, right, pull it together with your farm and mix it all together and say, well, here's my overall income, here's my overall wages paid. Here's my overall equipment paid, and that's the best way to test test it for these limits. So that's why you need to aggregate. Um, but again, the good news is this would be for like tiered entities where you have multiple subsidiaries underneath an entity that you can actually kind of group everything together, aggregate at the entity level, so that you're just not passing out as much information. Um, so there's just less details involved. So that's mostly a 
a tax preparer kind of ease of record keeping kind of thing. But you know, we have some some clients that might have three or four or five subsidiaries maybe, but there are there are you know businesses that have got you know two, three, four hundred subsidiaries you know I've heard of. And so if you've got to pass out all that individual information, it can get real hairy. So so that was a nice thing. Um, we talked about this could be a good thing. You know, they are providing us more guidance on what is considered a trade or business for rentals, right? I mean, is it either good news or bad news? If I clearly have more than 250 hours, then, you know, I guess I'm feeling really good, right? But I think the safe harbor is, is probably a little more bad news just because of the requirements to, you know, have the contemporaneous records starting in 2019. And, you know, it's a lot more black and white. So anyway, that, I'll kind of put that under both. Um, they did do away with this, this, what was called the incidental rule, which dealt with um, specified service trades or businesses and whether you could break off like a, if you had a dermatology practice and you wanted to break off like the skincare products business and do a separate entity. They basically just did away with that. They thought it was kind of a dumb idea. We agree with that. Uh, okay, so back to some implications for farmers here. Um, again, you've either got to have wages or you've got to have qualified property in order to potentially get this deduction when your income levels are, are high over this 315 number. So um, the question was, okay, what if I buy out a partner in a partnership, right? If I buy out a partner, we talked about this, if there was a difference, and I'll still remind people about this, if I, if I buy out a partner in a partnership, in a cross-purchase situation where the, you know, they, I actually buy your ownership interest, Casey, I can take bonus depreciation on that. If the partnership buys out the partner, you cannot, the partnership cannot take bonus depreciation. So the, the good news here is the IRS mimicked that rule and said, if I, if I buy out a partner, right, and there's equipment in there, I'm gonna be able to count that excess purchase price that I paid as part of my qualified property in order for these limits. So if I buy a partner now, I do get the qualified property. Um, if the partnership though buys out the partner, that is not an increase to their qualified property limit. So again, the way to think about that is it's exactly the same as for bonus depreciation. So the change is before you did not get any, any increase in your qualified property if you bought somebody out. So that's a nice thing. What if I take all my equipment, just to, you know, for simple math, if all my equipment, <clears throat> Uh, originally cost a million dollars and I put it into a, to an S corporation or a partnership and at that time there's no basis in the property right because I, I fully depreciated it what is my qualified property for purposes of you, you may remember this hopefully you don't Casey because it's been a long time but I get to take whatever my qualified property is times two and a half percent that's that's potentially what I'm limited to so do I get to take my two and a half percent times a million dollars? Because, you know, hey, that's, I bought this stuff a few years ago. I'm gonna put it into this partnership. You know, shouldn't it still stay a million dollars? Well, the proposed rate said, no, it actually will come in zero, not a million. So it really harmed your, your qualified property. Luckily the IRS, this is great news. The IRS said, no, if you incorporate, we're gonna let you carry over that million dollars. So um, nice feature there. Same thing with a like kind exchange. If I, if I trade it off a building, under the old rules, they would say, no, it, it comes in as your net tax basis at the date of the exchange, right? Again, it would be reduced. You would be hurting your qualified property if you did a lifetime exchange. They came out and said, no, we'll let you leave it alone. It'll be still, it'll still stay.
stayed at a high original cost basis. Um, so again, really good news there that if I incorporate in a tax-free exchange or, or I uh, form a partnership, no issues there. If I do a 1031 exchange, you know, that's a lifetime exchange, no issues there. So really good news in that front. Um, let's look at my notes here, Casey. We're, we're getting through it here. Are you, are you staying with me? I'm with you, buddy. I'm right here. I'm, and I'm going to ace it, buddy. We're going to get to a couple other things here. The um, dealing in commodities was a real, a real question, right? And um, you might remember this: that everyone thought, "Well, what's dealing in commodities?" I think everyone thought, "Well, it's basically, you know, if I'm basically dealing in commodities on paper, right? Not, not with physical commodities, but." You know, people that read the lawsuit and, and these proposed regs said, well, you know what? I think a grain elevator, you know, they're buying grain and they're selling grain. I think they're going to be considered to be dealing in commodities. And so therefore, them personally, not the farmer, but them personally would not be able to get this one NA deduction. So would have been a real surprise. There was quite a few comment letters to this effect. Luckily, the IRS came out and said, no, if you actually take physical possession of the grain, you're going to be okay. So that's a huge, uh, huge help on that. And let me just pull up some other comments regarding that because they actually expanded it potentially even a little bit more um, than I actually maybe even thought. Um, because they basically say um, a producer, a processor, a merchant, or even a handler of commodities is not considered dealing in commodities. And again, you do not want to be considered dealing in commodities. If, if you're dealing in commodities, you're, you're ineligible. So they talk about, again, a producer, a processor, a merchant, or a handler. And um, they talk about, you know, just things like, you know, arranging for the movement of the commodities, you know, transferring or negotiation of shipping documents, dealing with quality claims, you know. So not, not just a pure grain elevator operation. I think it leaves the door open for maybe, you know, a, what, you know, what would be considered a handler, and, you know, and, and even people that are just own charter or lease vessels or, or the basement of barges. Um, and so potentially there's some, there's some angles there that, that again, could, could be helpful. So, so the dealing in commodities issue is definitely pretty much off the table. Again, if you're actually taking physical possession of the grain, then, then you should be fine. So that was a big help. Um, so I think, just looking at my notes here, that's a couple other things, but it's not, not worth talking about at this point. Um, that's pretty much the main takeaways. Now, you actually, because these final regulations, and that's why people thought, people thought, hey, these final regulations will be released by the end of the year. Well, guess what? They weren't. So because of that, you actually can follow the proposed regulations for 2018 tax year, if this makes any sense, Casey. So, because they weren't released by the end of the year and they weren't published in the Federal Register, basically for 2018 only, I could only, I could follow the proposed regs and, and elect not to follow the, the final regs. Now, probably not a whole lot of reason to do that, but it is just something to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, and you would just again have a have this is just a one year shot. So for 2018, you could just you could follow the proposed rules, and for 2019, you you know you have to follow the final. So. That's why most people, again, thought they would be released, but they didn't. So, again, some of those bad things we talked about, you know, if, you, if you're 
review your notes on that, replay that, some of those bad things, potentially you could say, well, hey, if those bad things are, are bad for me, I could, you know, if I'm a radiologist, I guess, potentially, you could say, that, you know, um, obviously, you know, consult your tax advisor, right? We're not, we're not giving tax advice here, but, but if you're a radiologist, um, potentially you could say, well, I'm going to follow the proposed regs because they talked about directly to a patient. So yeah. um, if it wasn't confusing enough, we have basically two options. I mean, that's exciting. It just keeps getting better. You can't, you, you can pick whichever one works best for you for now and then, and then confuse yourself even further. Even it just, yeah. it keeps getting better. Keeps yeah. getting better. So I expect there's a lot of seminars. I mean, the tons of seminars that are going to be, you know, the next week or so here, you know, people are, you know, providing a lot, a lot of these seminars are free or something. So, you know, and I think you'll even maybe see some seminars that might be tailored, you know, to certain industries. I, I've seen some that are coming up for, medical industry and things you know so there'll be a lot of people now deciphering these again these are 247 pages so it's a lot to grasp a lot to pick up on um, but again it's just something we've got to deal with this tax season now there's a, been a bit of a change so we're updating our, our templates you know we're, we're changing a few things and how we're going to approach things here at the office at Heinel Banner but um, again it's I think it's real important to to not rush this filing season and, and I would not recommend, you know, filing, you know, your entity tax returns until you know for sure the impact on your personal tax return, right? Because, you know, we don't want to have to go ahead and amend things later. Um, it, it's just not, you know, you don't, you just want to take your time on this, make sure the entity return is done and good shape. But I just have to sit in, my, in the corner of my office for a while until I make sure I've got, until I for sure know the impact on my personal tax return. Right. Otherwise, you're kind of flying blind a little bit. So yeah. just keep that in mind. You know, that's why we, when we last talked, we talked about, you know, making that January 15th tax estimate. So then you've got until April 15th to file your tax return. Um, because, you know, having a little more hindsight here definitely is going to help. Um, so just keep that in mind as you're talking to your tax people. Right on. Well, Glenn, ton of information today. And, uh, you pretty well laid it out like you normally do, and you did a great job. So if people want to reach out to you and ask more questions about the 250-hour uh, yeah. exemption and, and all those fun things you talked about there, how would they do that? Yeah, it's best to call me here at the office, Heinel Banner. So we're, you know, we're in East Peoria, Illinois, uh, right on the river here. Uh, our number is 309-694-4251, or you can always follow me on Twitter, at Glenn Birnbaum is my handle. Right on. And guys, follow his uh, – if you're out there listening right now, follow his Twitter handle. There's all kinds of good stuff on there. And, and then he gets everyone to chime in, and every once in a while they get a little – an accountant Twitter war going on there, and it's, it's, it's super exciting. So check it out. Make sure you follow Glenn. He's got good stuff out there. And, Glenn, till next time, we'll talk to you then. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Andrew Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. You'll be able to hear Dryline Farmer Podcast, Girls Talk Ag, The Topsoil Podcast, Ag News Daily, Working Cows, Heifer Please, Throwback Iron, and Ask Agnes. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardware.